This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. The man blamed for the death of Kennedy, Lee Harvey Oswald, was born and raised here in the city. In fact, just months before the assassination, Oswald was in New Orleans handing out pamphlets and other propaganda supporting then-Cuban dictator Fidel Castro. Castro was a known enemy of President Kennedy. In fact, WDSU did one of the last known interviews with Oswald before the assassination about his motives in support of Castro. And then there's Jim Garrison, the Orleans Parish District Attorney, during the time Kennedy was assassinated. Fascinated. Garrison led his own investigation into the president's death with the theory that Oswald was not the lone shooter and that members of the mafia in New Orleans conspired to that killed the president. There's also Clay Shaw, a New Orleans businessman and the only person prosecuted in the assassination of Kennedy. Garrison pressed charges against Shaw, saying he conspired with the CIA to kill Kennedy. However, Shaw was acquitted during a one-hour jury deliberation. This is Failed State Update, and I am Joseph L. Flatley. Today's interview is pretty darn good, if I do say so myself. We're speaking to Fred Litwin, the self-described former conspiracy theorist and author of On the Trail of Delusion, Jim Garrison, The Great Accuser. This book is uh, important to the canon of JFK conspiracy theory research even though it's going to be rejected out of hand by a lot of people in the JFK research, assassination research community, because it really exposes the lies and, quite frankly, craziness of Jim Garrison. Now, Jim Garrison was the New Orleans district attorney who sought for years and years and years to prove that there was a conspiracy based right in his city that brought down JFK. First, it was a gay conspiracy, and then when that didn't wash, it became a uh, military-industrial complex conspiracy. Wherever you stand on the subject of the JFK assassination, whether you think it was uh, a lone nut or a cast of thousands, the fact of the matter is that, that Garrison was a crazy, homophobic nut. And it's great to see someone like Fred Litwin did so much work and you know, original uh, research and dug up documentation to really just tell this story about how one man with a little power and a chip on his shoulder and really an obsession can create so much confusion and really set back the cause of JFK assassination research years. And uh, it's really quite a remarkable book. My name is Fred Litwin, and I've been, uh, I live in Ottawa, Canada, and I've been researching the JFK assassination since 1975. When I was 18 years old, living in Montreal, I saw the Geraldo Rivera show back then where he showed the Zapruder film, 
And I was horrified and I decided I had to go find out what exactly was happening. And that led to decades of research. Um, at first, I was believing in a conspiracy and over time, I changed my mind. And so two years ago, I wrote uh, my, my first book on the case called I Was a Teenage JFK Conspiracy Freak, which is a memoir that sort of goes through why I changed my beliefs. <clears throat> and my current book is On the Trail of Delusion, Jim Garrison, The Great Accuser. We're discussing things like talking about the JFK assassination. It should be a matter of just talking about what what happened, what's provable or not provable, and coming to a conclusion. But for a lot of people, it really is more about belief. How much does belief do you think play a role in how we see these conspiracies? And with something like the Kennedy assassination, is it ever really possible to know the truth? Well, I think a large part of this is definitely related to belief. And, and the Kennedy assassination is almost your Rosetta Stone of, of conspiracy because it allows you to see whatever it is you really want to see and then work backwards. And so a lot of people instead of understanding what happened, uh, they go, well, why was he killed? And they'll find their particular pet theory, okay, he was killed because this, he wanted to break up the CIA, and they hated him, and so they had to kill him. And then you go find your, the data to support that. Or other people might say, well, he wanted to uh, get out of Vietnam, he was going to change the foreign policy of the United States, and so he had to be killed. And so you see a lot of that, and people start with, with that question of why they move work backwards and they find everything to uh, that fits into their particular theory. And you see that very strongly with Oliver Stone, who, uh, because of his uh, the fact that he was in Vietnam, he served in Vietnam, Vietnam is very important to him. And he used the Kennedy assassination as a vehicle to get across his views on American foreign policy. So your book, at least at the beginning, concentrates on two gentlemen, Jim Garrison and Clay Shaw. The JFK conspiracy idea has become such a part of society that I think a lot of people don't really understand where exactly it came from or the fact that where it came from was so problematic. And I think Garrison's a great example of that. If you could just tell us who Jim Garrison was and how he plays into all this. Well, Jim Garrison was the district attorney of New Orleans in the 1960s. And he was elected on a uh, sort of a reform platform, and he was very ambitious. And so once he took office um, in 1963, 62, he really began to go after a variety of political interests in New Orleans. So he took on the judges. He took on the police. He took on the legislature of, of Louisiana. He, he went after the governor. He, he went after everybody and uh, generated a lot of headlines. And, and it became known you didn't really want to cross Jim Garrison. But what he also did was he discovered that there are a lot of unused powers in the district attorney's office that he could use. And so he decided to use some of these powers. And one of his favorite things to do was to subpoena people to appear before the grand jury, have them testify about something, uh, of course, in secret and also without a lawyer. And then he could basically go and uh, he would charge him with perjury. 
And this caused them great hardship because they would have to get a lawyer. They'd have to spend money. Uh, it's a felony charge. And so they could not even leave the parish without permission of, of Jim Garrison's office. They couldn't get bank loans. They couldn't get a mortgage. And so people became frightened uh, of Jim Garrison because uh, that's a lot of power. He he also had the, the power to, to get people to uh, appear in his office for questioning. And he also had the power to indict people on his own for any non-capital offense he could indict somebody with a stroke of the pen without going to the grand jury. So he had a lot of power. Where it all started to go wrong uh, in particular was that he decided, I guess he was bored in the fall of 1966. He started reading Rush to Judgment and other JFK conspiracy books. And um, he went down the rabbit hole with uh, disastrous consequences. So Garrison was portrayed by Kevin Costner in... Oliver Stone's JFK. But the real Garrison was far different than Costner's portrayal, wasn't he? Yeah, well he was, you know, I mean, look, he was a he was a very smart man. He was he could think on his feet. He had a very very good sense of humor. Um he could quote Shakespeare. He had a deep booming booming voice. And so he was very appealing on television. He made a fantastic interv- uh, interviewee. I mean, he he really was fun to talk to. And Louisianans, people in New Orleans in particular, like to be entertained mm-hmm. by their politicians. And that's what he did. He really entertained them. Um, but at the same time, he was terrorizing a lot of people. He was kind of a showboat, though, right? He would, like, even before the Kennedy assassination, he was known for these kind of ridiculous cases that he would take on and really was trying to drum up, like, publicity for himself, it seemed. He was always in the press. You can go back and check the uh, New Orleans Times Picayune, and you'll see almost on a weekly basis there would be some new controversy with Garrison where he would go after somebody, generate some headlines, and then nothing would really happen. But he got the headlines, and uh, you know that that's what he was after. He was very ambitious. I think he wanted to be either governor of Louisiana or he wanted to be a senator. He's so important to the JFK assassination research community because – he kind of laid the groundwork for like what the overall plot's going to be. Can you can you tell me what that is and kind of how he got to that conclusion? There was a very important link in the assassination in that Lee Harvey Oswald lived in New Orleans for five months prior to the assassination. And in fact, in 1963, Garrison was involved in investigating two leads that came out of New Orleans. So when he went into this whole issue again in 1966, he knew that if, if if there was a conspiracy, maybe it was incubated. Maybe the genesis was in New Orleans, and he already had a couple of leads. So it sort of made sense for him to go back and reinvestigate the two leads uh, from then and see where it went. The problem for Garrison was that both of those leads went nowhere, and so – uh, he ultimately had to uh, invent the evidence. How did that play out? How did he go about inventing evidence? Well, he and he was smart. I mean, he, he there were there were two leads, and so one lead was uh, this lawyer Dean Andrews, and on the weekend of the JFK assassination, he was in hospital with double pneumonia. He was under heavy sedation, and he claimed that on the Saturday before Oswald was killed, that he received a phone call from a Mr. Clay Bertrand who wanted to hire him to go to Dallas and represent Oswald. 
And so the question was, who was this man, Clay Bertrand, who tried to hire Dean Andrews? That was one lead. The second lead was on the weekend of the assassination, there was a former Eastern Airlines pilot by the name of David Ferry, who was doing some investigative work for the lawyer of Carlos Marcello, who was a mobster. And on the Friday night of the assassination, he drove to Houston, Texas for a weekend with two friends. And one of his enemies in New Orleans started calling up the FBI and New Orleans police on the weekend saying, that guy, David Ferry, is involved. He knew Lee Harvey Oswald uh, in the Civil Air Patrol in the 1950s. He knows guns. You should investigate him. And so those were the two leads. And, and, and Garrison looked at both of those leads back in 1963, and um, they went nowhere because Dean Andrews could not identify Clay Bertrand, and David Ferry was completely innocent. He had just gone on a fun trip to, to Houston for the weekend. You use the word, he uses the word, and and you kind of describe it a little propinquity. Is that, right. is that, is that a real word? Was that even a real word? Well, it's it's a real word and it's a very interesting one. It's one of it's one of Garrison's. Um, he had a theory of of how he investigated crime, and it was the theory of propinquity. And propinquity, it's a great word. Propinqui, propinquity basically is is uh, are people who live near each other, um, or it could be coincidence of other of other types of coincidence, like two people are homosexual, something like that. But if he believed the two people lived near each other, they might be connected. And so Garrison was always looking at city directories and looking at different blocks. And so if Lee Harvey Oswald, when he lived in New Orleans, lived on the 4900 block of Magazine Street, Garrison would look at who else lived on Magazine Street. And if somebody's uncle lived on the 5000 block of Magazine Street, then they were linked to Lee Harvey Oswald. And so he was looking for links, and um, people in the office thought he was crazy, but that's what he did. Yeah, I think I think you offered one example. It was like, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but it was like somebody lived in an apartment that David Ferry owned, who which was like near something else that <laughs> of, of somebody who knew Lee Harvey Oswald or something. So like the idea was that Clay Shaw must be connected to Oswald. Yeah, he wrote he wrote two memos on propinquity, uh, link, listing all of these sort of coincidences, and he uh, he also wrote other memos with other uh, propinquity items, and it was bizarre. So you know, if you ate at a restaurant across the street from a suspect, then you were linked, and 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 that's what he was looking for, and and. Um, and and it went. He would investigate the people who lived on an entire block, every single one of them, because one person had some sort of linkage. And and you find these memos, and of course they all went nowhere. But uh, that's his craziness. Was uh, Garrison mentally ill, or like how was he off? I guess is my question. <laughs> in many ways, but <laughs> he, he he in the nineteen fifties he he was uh, he was discharged from the military for. Uh, uh, psychiatric problems. And uh, they did a psychiatric workup on Garrison and they said that he was severely incapacitated for civilian life. And he went to see a psychiatrist for a while. Um, so there were certainly some issues back then. 
But I think the larger issue, and one that I raised in my book, and we don't know, but was Garrison perhaps a repressed homosexual? Um, and did he perhaps take out some of that repression on Clay Shaw, who was uh, another gay man in New Orleans? I don't know the answer to that, but it's a question that's that's open. I did an interview with uh, Jim Hogan, who's a investigative journalist who knew Norman Mailer when Norman Mailer was writing about, you know, investigating and writing about Oswald. And I also talked to Lawrence Schiller, who was like, who right. worked oh, wow. with Mailer. Yeah. And yeah. this was like, I was just going down this rabbit hole like four or five months ago when I recorded these interviews. And then I thought, well, I'll just wait until November and put them out. And it's just like, just happens to be coincidence that I discovered your book like last week. Wow. Can you get in touch with Lawrence Schiller again? Uh, yeah, I because I'd, lo- I'd love to it. talk to him, and he must have some documents. He he was involved in investigating homosexuality back in Garrison's day, and actually, uh, there is a memo about him in Garrison's files, which I don't have, but I want to get, and uh, so I'd love to talk to him. I think I just caught him on the right day because it was like I think he's in New York, and they were locked down, and I emailed him, and he emailed me right back, and it's like I got right. nothing to do, give me a call. So right, right, but. I can kick myself because I was playing back this interview I hadn't heard since, you know, four months ago. And um, I asked him about the Kennedy uh, assassination stuff. And he talked about how he was in Las Vegas and he got pictures of Jim Garrison with his lover that were, I think he said they went in Life magazine or something. And I'm kicking myself because I didn't follow up on that (laughs) at all. You know, it just, it didn't really mean anything to me at the time. And um, I'm wondering how much of... All of this that we're talking about, whether or not Jim Garrison had some sort of hidden homosexual angle there or just his kind of how crazy this investigation was. Was that apparent in New Orleans at the time or in Louisiana? Like were people that were following this stuff thinking that there's something not quite right with Jim Garrison? There was. There was. And you could see memos written by Aaron Cohn, who was head of the Metropolitan Crime Commission. It's a private group of citizens who were uh, interested in, in crime in New Orleans. I have memos, several, many memos from him talking about Garrison's mental illness. And he actually went to a doctor. He went to Dr. Oshner, who was quite famous in New Orleans. And they, they had a discussion about um, Garrison's uh, mental illness. And Dr. Oshner said he's clearly mentally ill. Like the propinquity thing, I think I keep getting stuck on that. Uh, because a, it's an amazing word. First of all, it sounds like schizoid effective, just <laughs> layman's terms, you know. But it's so indicative of how a lot of these Kennedy assassination researchers operate. It's really telling that something that's impacted so many people's lives has really come from something as weird as, you know, Jim Garrison's you know, proclivity for propinquity. <laughs> well, you know, that, look, it's what... what Making connections is one, of the, is one of the things that makes us human. We look for connections all the time. And, and the problem with, with conspiracy theorists is that they see something that's really not there. Uh, sometimes there really are conspiracies, like uh, Al-Qaeda taking out the World Trade Center. But, uh, you know, and that was the problem with Garrison was he was always seeing these connections um, that nobody else could see. And even when the evidence was really, really clear, he was he would just go on and, and uh, as as if it didn't matter. I'll give you one example. Was he, he, he fancied himself to be a cryptologist. And he could see, he could decipher codes 
um, in Lee Harvey Oswald's notebook and Clay Shaw's notebook. And in one famous case, uh, a Warren Commission critic, Sylvia Marr, wrote him a registered letter saying, look, you're, you're off your rocker. This is not true. This is wrong. Uh, here's why you're wrong. There's no connection here. Um, and he called her the next day. He got the letter. He called her on the phone. And it's like he ignored everything in the letter. Did not make an impression on him one bit. I must imagine that the fact that he was the DA and he had all these powers and he had this budget had just really fed into his whatever his disorder was and, you know, empowered him. And it was worse because he not only had his own budget, but he had private funding. So he actually set up an organization called Truth or, Truth or Consequences of private businessmen, and they funded his investigation privately. That he raised $100,000 back then uh, for his personal private use uh, on the assassination. And let's talk about Clay Shaw a little bit, because he's one of the more dramatic examples of someone whose life was totally destroyed by Garrison's investigation. Yeah, Clay Shaw was a war hero. He did a lot of work on logistics and in the Normandy invasion in World War II, and he received medals from three different countries. Um, And he went back to New Orleans, and he was very involved in international trade. And he built, uh, raised the money and built the International Trade Center in New Orleans. Um, so he was very, very famous as a popular, uh, as an important businessman. But privately, he was um, a playwright. And he'd written uh, several plays, one of which had been performed quite often in the United States. And he liked to buy properties and restore them. And he was quite successful at doing that in the French Quarter. And a lot of his houses were featured in the magazines in New Orleans. So he was very well known and very well liked. He was a patron of the arts, uh, but he was uh, in the closet. Um, uh, he was a closeted homosexual. So what role did he allegedly play? What role did Garrison claim that he played in the assassination? Well, there was that lead of, of Clay Bertrand, the man who supposedly called Dean Andrews to hire a lawyer for Lee Harvey Oswald. And so the question for Garrison was, who is Clay Bertrand? And this Clay Bertrand, according to Dean Andrews, uh, was gay, and he spoke Spanish. And Garrison put two and two together and said, well, Clay Shaw is gay. Clay Shaw speaks Spanish. And he had this belief that gay people, when they use a pseudonym, keep the same first name. Oh, of course. And so... Clay Shaw must be Clay Bertrand, and that was his theory. And uh, he eventually um, found a witness who uh, he put under hypnosis and administered sodium pentothal, who uh, put Clay Shaw uh, at the scene of a party where they discussed the assassination. Garrison's claim seemed to kind of switch from like, ultimately, he decided it was the military industrial complex that wanted to wipe out Kennedy because he wasn't going to allow them to run amok and keep breaking in the big bucks. But initially it was a homosexual plot, allegedly, right? With Clay and a lot of these people. For like the first couple of months of his investigation, there was Clay Shaw, David Ferry was gay. And then he had this belief that Oswald was gay and Jack Ruby was gay. And he actually told uh, a number of reporters that it was a homosexual conspiracy um, where gay people, these homosexuals, were upset that Kennedy was a virile, straight man who they could never get into bed, and that they had convinced themselves that they had to kill him. And <laughs> it's so convenient that, like, 
Garrison came on this uh, his other angle and he could just kind of like forget that he was saying that you know yeah and i think i think you know there were a couple of things i think a lot of the conspiracy theorists who went to new orleans to help him out like mark lane and harold weisberg when they heard that theory i'm sure they told him look you got to cut this out because you're sounding a bit kooky the cia is a much better target for you than uh, than homosexuals there was a large community of I think predominantly leftist figures and Ramparts magazine and stuff. We're all looking into this. How did Garrison kind of fit into that? Well, there was a whole community of, of, of JFK assassination conspiracy buffs who were out there looking at the 26 volumes of evidence. They are writing books like Harold Weisberg and Mark Lane and Sylvia Marr and Richard Popkin and a whole variety of others. Many of them had gone to New Orleans to help out Garrison. Uh, a few didn't go, like Sylvia Marr. Um, and so he was one of he he was sort of part of that milieu. What really gets interesting, and I'm really going to go through this in my next book, is that Sylvia Marr, who was one of the smarter critics, uh, didn't buy into it, and she started getting very upset at the other critics for accepting Garrison's nonsense. And in fact, I went to her archives and I put on my blog two memos she wrote about the Shaw trial. Um, And she actually corresponded with Clay Shaw. um, And she broke off relations with a number of critics because of their uh, silliness in supporting Garrison. She felt it was just a horrible thing that was going on. And and it's really amazing, almost comical, like, just what kind of people were attracted to the investigation or dragged into the investigation. One that sticks out, he's come up on my podcast a couple of times is Carrie Thornley. Yeah. Which is, yes. Why don't you just share his connection to all of this? Carrie Thornley was a, a Marine uh, buddy of, of Oswald's. They served together in 1959 for about three months, I think in California. And uh, Oswald was on his way out Thornley was on his way in, and they 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 crossed paths, and Oswald was attracted to Thornley because Thornley was an atheist, as was Oswald, and so they discussed politics for quite some time, but they weren't huge friends, um, but Thornley knew him, and uh, to make a long story short, Thornley after uh, the assassination, or I should say before after he got out of the military, ended up moving to New Orleans. And while Lee Harvey Oswald was in New Orleans in uh, September of 1963, so was Kerry Thornley. They were both there at the same time for about three weeks. And Garrison got it into his head that Kerry Thornley knew Oswald in New Orleans and started to make up a whole variety of conspiracy theories around him and ultimately indicted Thornley for perjury. It took years of fighting to get that quashed. Um, it was actually completely silly. Um, I have a chapter on Kerry Thornley in my book. It's, it's, uh, it's quite unbelievable. But for a while, Garrison believed that he was an Oswald impersonator. And how many Oswalds ultimately were there? That's a good question. Was there two, three, or four Oswalds? I mean, I tell the story of a Garrison uh, research, uh, staffer, Tom Bethel, and he was having uh, lunch with another JFK researcher, and Bethel was making fun of the two Oswald theory. And the other researcher said, well, no, you're right. There's not, there wasn't two Oswalds. There were three Oswalds. 
And there were two Jack Rubies. And this was all to explain how these people could be in multiple cities at the same time. and You know, like any national crime, when, when you have uh, the whole country interested in what's going on, there's, there's no shortage of people who call up and say, well, I saw Oswald here, I saw Oswald there. And so we're in a lot of instances of people seeing Oswald. And of course, uh, most of them were bogus. In fact, um, there, were, there was a report that Oswald was in Montreal, where I was born in that summer, um, at, a, at a demonstration in support of Castro. And I know researchers here in Canada who have gotten, gone crazy trying to get the RCMP to release pictures. And when you actually see the pictures that came out, you know, Oswald was not only not there, but there were like six people at this demonstration. Um, so people saw Oswald everywhere. And of course, so conspiracy theorists said, well, there must be two Oswalds, and that's how we explain it. Kerry Thornley was, it seems like he was pretty much driven nuts, or at least helped along the way by this, by his interactions with Garrison. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, he started, Kerry Thornley started thinking, you know, um, you know, uh, because New Orleans is pretty small, you know, he, he actually met uh, Clay Shaw once, although he wasn't really certain of it, but Clay, because Clay Shaw uh, had owned a building that he was renting from, and he may have been there doing some redecoration. So he may have seen Clay Shaw once, and he saw Guy Bannister once. And, you know, with all the conspiracy theories floating around, he started thinking, my God, I met this person, I met that person. Maybe it is all connected. Maybe I am part of this somehow. And uh, he started going slightly crazy. And, and, and what ultimately happened to Clay Shaw? Well, Clay Shaw was indicted by Garrison for conspiring to kill Kennedy. It took two years for the case to come to trial. Um, he was acquitted after a 30-day trial. And then on the next business day, Garrison indicted him for perjury, two counts of perjury. And that took another two years for Clay Shaw to uh, quash and um, he then sued Garrison for $5 million in damages, um, but unfortunately he got sick and he died of cancer shortly after that. Did Garrison's investigation eventually kind of peter out? I guess it had to. He lost re-election. Um, so did it kind of just peter out only to be resurrected by the Oliver Stone movie? He continued the investigation after the perjury charges, and in fact there was a flurry of memos in his office for the next five or six months after that. Um, but Garrison had back problems then, severe back problems, and he was out of the office for several months. And uh, at that point in 1960, late 1969, the office lost interest, and he lost interest and, and uh, sort of petered out. Um, and he was also writing a book. He wrote a book in 1970, A Heritage of Stone, which was sort of about the, about the CIA and the assassination. And, um, and then and he's also fighting re-election, and so there are too many other things, and he's, the whole thing just petered out. One person that comes up in every time I crack open a book about the Kennedy assassination is um, Fletcher Prouty. I know he was influential <laughs> in uh, Oliver Stone, and I just can't. You know, the first time I ever heard of him, I was like, playing with a shortwave radio and some like program by the Liberty lobby, you know, some like anti-Semitic far right wing thing. Like he was like the host of it or something. And I'm just like, or they were promoting him. And I, so I just always associated him with this like really gross right wing anti-Semitic 
politics. Um, but you know, all these like left wing guys who are who are writing their JFK books, you know, they they always cite him without even mentioning what a horrible person he is or like putting him in any context, which I always just find really odd. Well, it's it's really interesting in that Fletcher Prouty was a worked in the Pentagon and I think some special operations. He worked in the joint for the Joint Chiefs of Staff and he retired in 1963, uh, went on to start writing these books. And he was a right wing conspiracy theorist, um, almost the forerunner of the Trumpists in believing in the deep state. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't use the term the deep state, but he called it the secret team. Yeah. Right. A secret team of CIA military industrial complex people who were running the country. And and here's what I thought is what I think is so interesting is that his sort of right wing conspiracy theories uh, were taken up by Oliver Stone, who was sort of a left wing conspiracy theorist. It's sort of a marriage of of the two. It, what I show in my book is uh, Fletcher Prouty was working, did a lot of work for the Liberty Lobby, which was a group uh, organized that denied the Holocaust and a horrible, horrible group. And Prouty, uh, Prouty's book was published by one of their organizations. And uh, that caught up. Oliver Stone, you know, people started criticizing um, Prouty when the, when the Oliver Stone's film came out. And Oliver Stone would, knew about this. And he kept on saying to the public, well, look, you know, he may have made a mistake. But you know what? In, in private life, Prouty is not anti-Semitic. He never says anything anti-Semitic. But I found a smoking gun and I found a an anti-Semitic letter that I publish in my book um, that he sent out to another researcher, which is quite damning. What were the contents of the letter? The contents, he was warning in the letter about the problems of military technology and the fact that you sometimes have military communication systems in a plane that where you have to rely upon ground people to help you out and causes problems. And his letter says, what if the person on the ground is Jewish? You see that so much in the conspiracy theory realm, you know, these marriages of convenience between right and left or citing people like Fletcher Prouty or the Executive Intelligence Review, which was like a weird Lyndon LaRouche uh, propaganda arm that like did quote unquote investigations of things. Well, I, I think I, I think it's really crazy. I th- in fact, the, the funny part is if you read my first book, you'll see the first article I ever got published back in 1976 was in a small conspiracy magazine. And you could see that I, I put a, um, a JPEG of the of the uh, index on my first book. And I'm Fletcher Prouty is right there with me is with, with another article. I knew back then it was crazy. He, you know, these sort of huge conspiracies I don't are, are way too hard to keep secret. I, I sort of would understand if somebody believed, well, you know, Oswald shot Kennedy um, and he was communicated with by the Cubans or somebody else and there were a few people involved. Um, I, 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 you know, I could be talked to with a small conspiracy, but when you get up into the upper levels of the CIA, the military industrial complex, and they're all covering it up and they're uh, altering evidence and it just it's way too big, and I, I don't think it can remain uh, secret. Say what you will about evil people doing evil things, you know, but when you start kind of positing that there's hundreds of thousands of people doing it to you all the time, and somehow nobody knows, 
I think it opens you up to like the kind of collective insanity that QAnon is. I was talking to uh, another researcher, Gus Russo, who is a great researcher, and he was talking to an FBI agent who worked on the Kennedy case in New Orleans. And this FBI guy was Irish Catholic, and he said he loved Kennedy. And he was in tears. He was in tears when he was talking to Gus Russo. He said, I, I loved Kennedy. I wouldn't cover up anything. I wouldn't do. I mean, I, I love the man. And he was in tears because of all the, the allegations. And, you know, that's kind of my major critique of these, like, very large, irresponsible, on the face of it, obviously, bizarro conspiracies, is it really reduces people to... It takes away their humanity and it denies, like, you know, the subtlety and the things about us that, you know, are fully human. Like, I, I did a piece a few years ago about this group of people that think the Boston Marathon bombing didn't happen. They they, they claim that it was, like, you know, special effects and people pretending they got their legs blown off and, like, act crisis actors, they were called, and developed this complex theory to explain away this event, like the Office of Naval Intelligence was supposedly, you know, doing psychological testing or something. Completely ridiculous. And I'm looking at, you know, I, I talked to someone that was there at the finish line and took pictures, just happened to be taking pictures of the finish line when the explosion happened, when the bomb went off. And I just thought, how can you look at these things and think, <laughs> you know oh, they're full of shit or they're making stuff up or like, it's just, it's really callous and dehumanizing, I think, looking at the world at this level. Yeah, it's, it's, it's I mean, I look at the fact that some of the conspiracy theorists now have to make up about how evil Clay Shaw was. Yeah. And and they're making up all these stories about how evil and horrible what an awful man he was. And it really obscures the truth about, about Clay Shaw, who was a really nice soul who is remembered fondly in New Orleans mm -hmm. and there's a really nice plaque on Governor Nichols Street uh, in New Orleans uh, for Clay Shaw and it's and there and this is the problem is that, is that is that sometimes it's fun to have conspiracy theories you know if you believe in the Sasquatch or you believe in UFOs okay I don't you know it's harmless fun mm -hmm. but sometimes the JFK assassination turns uh, deadly and I think of uh, Carlos Bringuier, who was an anti-Castro Cuban in New Orleans, who Garrison went after, and his wife was so worried that he was going to be arrested, she had a miscarriage. Yeah. And it's stuff like that that affect people's, people who lost jobs. I actually spoke to Albo Buff. Albo Buff was one of the people who went on that trip that weekend with David Ferry mm -hmm. to Houston. He's now 74 years old. He was 21 at the time. He's still, he's still, he's still around. He's still alive. And um, he couldn't get a job back then. Garrison's, men's, Garrison's men were following around. Uh, every employer he went to, they would go visit. He couldn't get a job because they had tried to bribe him. And his lawyer uh, had the smarts to actually tape the conversation. And there was a whole investigation, and Garrison forced Bo Buff to come down and and say he wasn't bribed, sign a statement that he wasn't bribed, because it was the only way he was going to be able to get a job. Yeah, and you know, you're not just describing, you know, Garrison as somebody who was wrong. You're you're describing him as like 
somebody who was not beyond using strong arm tactics to try to push his pet theory, even, you know, at the expense of these people's, you know, their lives and careers, sanity. And so that's where I really have a problem. I don't have a problem if somebody believes in conspiracy and the JFK assassination. We could have a civil discussion about it. But garrison ruined people's lives. And that goes beyond. That's not worth it. It's not worth it. And and that's what bugged me about Oliver Stone. When he was asked about some of this, he said it was worth it. One man's life was worth it to uncover the truth. Yeah, that's really just heartless. I have the JFK assassination in like kind of a box, maybe yes, maybe no. <laughs> you know, like I, I'm, de- I'm definitely in the broadest sense, was there more than one person behind the Kennedy assassination? I think there could be. Yep. But even as somebody who's uh, sympathetic to the conspiracy angle of the JFK assassination, I think it's up to people like me when you hear about how crazy Garrison was and what he was doing and how he ruined people's lives to speak up and say something. And I really thank you for writing the book and drawing attention to this this just really ill-understood chapter of American history. Yeah, thanks. It's, 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 uh, it still boggles my mind just the fact that there's so many defenders yeah. of Garrison out there who think that he was actually a hero. So, so how did you go from uh, researching the JFK assassination to kind of rejecting the whole conspiracy theory thing? Well, I, I was a conspiracy theorist, and, and the good news for me was I um, I started in the 1970s, but I became busy. I went to get my MBA at, at Queen's University at Kingston, and I, I sort of moved to Toronto, and I put it all away. I put all this stuff away, and when the House Select Committee on Assassinations final report came out, they accepted the single bullet theory. And I had always had trouble with the single bullet theory, but I, I was too busy to look into it. And I said, in the back of my mind, I really have to revisit this at some point to find out why they accepted it. And in the early 1990s, I, uh, I moved to England and I was living there and somebody released the House Select Committee on Assassinations, their volumes of evidence on a CD-ROM. And so I bought the CD-ROM and I started going through it and I was floored when I actually saw some real trajectory analysis diagrams done by NASA, and it all worked. It all was, every, everything worked. And I read the Forensic Pathology Panel report, and what amazed me was the fact that they had done all these scientific tests, forensic, fingerprint, all these scientific tests, and every single test came back in support of a lone gunman. And that made a big impression on me, and that's when I started to change. I guess just as a journalist, I'm naturally attracted to a, a theory or an explanation that has less moving parts. <laughs> you know, if something can be right, complained, yes. you know, something can be explained simply as opposed to these books I have, various books I have in the JFK assassination. It's just loads and loads and loads and loads of data or information or factoids or tidbits that like. I can't tell what it adds up to. I don't know who these geniuses are who can. Maybe the people who read the book or write the books are just that much more intelligent than I am. I don't know. But, I mean, really, it just seems to prove that if you have 50 years and thousands of people and and thousands of factoids, you can twist them around to explain anything, ultimately. Yeah, you can. 
and and that's you know that's what conspiracy theorists do is they latch on to all sorts of factoids, add them all together, put them together into some sort of false narrative. So what went into your actually researching and writing this book? You know, you've uncovered a lot of documents that I think are being seen here for the first time. I, I literally went to every single archive I could find in in the United States that had primary garrison documents. Um, I mean, there are still two more archives I have not gone to. One is closed, and the other one is in Mem- in um, in Tennessee that I wanted to go to, but because of COVID, I couldn't get down there. But I went to everywhere I could find a garrison document. I went. I made four trips to Washington. I went to Dallas twice. I went to New Orleans, and I got a ton of stuff, uh, thousands and thousands of pages of garrison documents. And uh, that's why I wanted to include a lot of documents in my book so people can actually see some of this stuff firsthand. What do you got coming up next? Do you Did you say you had another book that kind of builds off this one? I think my next book will be the end of my trilogy on the JFK assassination. And it's, it's what I want to do is go back in the 1960s and look at um, – start with all the early critics of the Warren Commission, Mark Lane, Harold Weisberg, Sylvia Marr, and look at how they misled the American population. Uh, my tentative title is uh, We Were Misled. And it will be sort of a social history of, of JFK conspiracy thinking to the present day. And I, I've I've got a ton of material for it already, and I've got some more archives to go to, and uh, it's going to be a, a fun book. Well, we will definitely keep our eyes out for it, and I'll just you know I'm very excited about the current book, and uh, I really enjoy talking to you. I would just say, you know, for anybody who's listening to this, that wherever you fall on the spectrum of like Kennedy, you know, assassination conspiracy or lone nut like you fred you really just present so much important information and tell a really compelling story about what happens when like a crazy guy gets power and you know runs amok with it and i think and i think it's definitely well worth reading so thanks for uh, talking to me well thank you very much for having me i appreciate it <laughs> And thank you for listening to this episode of Failed State Update. I'm your host, Joseph L. Flatley. And um, yeah, if you want to see more of my stuff or reach out to me or complain at me, I can be reached through my website, LennyFlatley.net, or you can find me on Twitter, at Lenny Flatley. And of course, all the links will be in the show notes. Right down here, right.